So he said, no, I want to give it every chance, do what you can. So we, we fixed the bird and um, did the surgery and, and um, sort of three or four weeks later, sort of did our post-operative check. And he drove this bird nine hours. This bird came nine hours overnight from the moors where they were flying in Scotland down to us overnight. Um, and so we treated it. Um, came back three or four weeks later took some x-rays I was like oh that doesn't actually look too bad fine it might do a little bit better than I thought and then I didn't hear from the from the client for about six months and six months later he sent me this picture of it flying back up in Scotland couldn't really tell that it ever had the injury and I was like wow and this is, it's not so much what we did but just birds ability to heal was incredible Hey, how's it going, everyone? Welcome back for another episode of the Falconry Toll Podcast and what is now our sixth episode in our series featuring falconers in the UK. And of course, I have to give a quick shout out and thank you to the two guys that made this series possible, being Simon Tires, who is also the author of The Specialist Falcon. And The Specialist Falcon is a book that is basically an overview of Simon's personal approach to lowland game hawking in the UK. Even though this book is written more from a British perspective, it's also a great book with lots of information on flying long wings, especially involving newer technology like drones and such. And I highly recommend it if you want to pick up a book that has a lot of information about the approach to flying long wings. So if you haven't picked up your copy, I recommend that you head to thespecialistfalcon.com and there's also signed copies available on there as well. So. You'll definitely want to add this one to your library if you haven't already. And of course, I have to give a quick shout out to Neil Davies, who is the editor of Pursuit Falconry and Conservation Magazine, which if you haven't checked it out yet, is another great publication that is doing a great job in promoting the art of falconry across the world. There's always lots of great new content, art, equipment, etc. in every issue. So if you haven't yet, head to pursuitfalconry.co.uk and subscribe now. And I believe it was on the second morning or so of the Valley Expo, I got a chance to nab Tom Dutton for a bit before things got too busy and pick his brain some about some of the diseases that affect us greatly in falconry and of course get some of the stories from him that he found most impactful in his career so far. Tom's a falconer and veterinarian in the UK so a lot of his knowledge that he was willing to share in this episode I think you'll find fairly useful or at least somewhat insightful. So all that being said I'm going to go ahead and turn things over to the conversation I had with Tom Dutton. Here we go. How you doing this morning, Tom? You doing all right? Yeah, doing really well, thank you. Really Sweet. well. Sweet. How was uh, how was yesterday for you? Did you get tired of talking at all? Uh, no, I enjoyed yesterday. It's uh, it was really good to have um, sort of new faces and old faces. So a few a few sort of existing clients met up with some really good good friends as well, and then and then some new people. Um, so it was a really good day. Um, good weather. Didn't rain, so can't complain. Bit of wind today though. Yeah, it's looking uh, not so promising today outside. Pretty gray, pretty windy. Yeah, I'm not really sure <laughs> weather-wise is going to be the, the best day today, but I guess we'll see what happens. Absolutely. The birds, they're, they're flying, a, flying a few birds at the moment, so we'll see how they cope in these conditions. It's uh, early season, so uh, I think the birds that aren't quite fit yet might struggle a little bit on, on the demonstrations, but it's, <laughs> it'll be good experience for them. 
Yeah, we were just talking. Normally, I hate a lot of background noise and stuff, but honestly, I really haven't minded the occasional dog bark or uh, engine noise from the row crows and things like that. It kind of uh, just adds to the uh, <laughs> the ambiance of the of the of the situation, I guess. Absolutely, I think I think the row crows are a nice noise. I think some of those drones, the whine of that those drones as they come over, is a, a little bit more tedious sometimes. But they're amazing technology. Yeah, no, there's been some cool stuff here. I've I've kind of been intrigued by some of the stuff. I was talking to Kevin some last night a lot about the uh, the row crow and the potential for that. You know, some, stuff like that really hasn't caught on too much in the states yet. It's more just typical droning and things mm-hmm. like that. But I was telling him last night I could see some practical applications for it. But I mean, have you ever messed with any of this stuff? Yeah, so I've, I've had the Rocros um, probably since the first year they came out. I think the Robara was the first. And for the birds that I was flying, it was just a bit big. And for the land near my house, it was just a, not as mobile, didn't really suit as well. But when the Rocro came out the first year, I think I probably ordered one of the first models, um, crashed it spectacularly, repaired <laughs> it a few times, got it going um, and, and really enjoyed it. I think the, the biggest... Um, the biggest use for for me is is raptor rehabilitation. I think I think for our wild injured birds that come into the hospital, particularly with orthopedic injuries that we repair, um, being able to use something like a row crow um, and getting getting that reliable high quality flight training um leading up to a, a release is, is definitely going to improve uh the rehab um i think i think that's one of our biggest responsibilities when we're treating these birds is that we it's not just fixing the fracture it's getting these birds rehabilitated and actually having a good chance of of, of survival in the wild again so we've we've been doing that and and really seen some positive initial results um compared to traditional lure flying or or drone flying yeah, no, I think that's that's actually really I didn't even think about that. I mean, I I could see um even a use for, you know, educational shows, things like that or exhibitions, but I didn't even think about the application for rehab. Yeah. Getting, just getting bird strength back up and working, you know, getting their muscle, you know, worked back up and and uh yeah, strength overall and no, that that's actually really really cool. I mean, yeah, do you, I mean, so do you use that semi-frequently for that then? I mean, yeah, I think I think the problem with it is um, we rely very heavily on falconers to do a lot of our, our rehab. And most falconers only have a finite amount of time. They might have their own birds they've got to fly. And if they take on the responsibility of a wild rehab bird, that's a big time commitment for them. Um, so there's probably only three or four birds in any given time who are, who have been trained in that way. Um, but this is the time of year it happens. We see it. This is where we see the peak of our raptor casualties with freshly fledged birds um getting themselves into trouble um so for the next sort of three three to four months this is when we'll probably start seeing um a few more a few more cases and and start finding willing falconers um to to rehab these birds and i think the falconers enjoy doing it i think it's um it's good good for them it's something they can give back to conservation i think a lot of i think everyone doesn't really appreciate how conservationally minded the majority of falconers are and and they want to see wild raptors doing really well um they're the biggest advocate for wild raptors that i know um and and um and it's yeah it's certainly certainly a really positive thing that they get involved with and we've found that because the speed that these birds then regain fitness with the row crow training 
they may only need to remain in captivity sort of post recovery for maybe four to six weeks and they're gaining enough fitness in that short window um that they can get released um and so we're getting these birds released before the winter months the harder months which is which is really important for sure yeah because i mean yeah if you released them in the winter months like that then they almost definitely probably die for sure but yeah. well i mean as far as is the the turnaround time what what would normally be the turnaround time for a lot of your cases? I mean, if you weren't using it, then would it be more like two months or? Yeah, it could or, or, longer, or longer, maybe even yeah. three or four. Mm-hmm. And it's just not when you say if you're flying to a lure and, and they're doing that sort of yo-yoing pattern of flight that a lot of birds will do to a lure. It's, it's not a natural hunting style. It, it doesn't get them picking up a sight picture of natural quarry. It, it doesn't make a lot of. It doesn't make a lot of sense. It gets they get to a certain level of fitness and then it sort of plateaus. Mm-hmm. Um, it's certainly better than putting them in an aviary or hack pen and hoping they're going to gain fitness that way. And mm-hmm. sort of fifteen years ago, when I sort of looked at raptor rehabilitation and these birds would they'd fix the fracture, they'd go into a big aviary, they would fly short laps at best, build minimal fitness, and then we expected them to to survive in the wild. Mm-hmm. I think I think we were looking at that with rose tinted spectacles that many of those birds were going to do well. And I think um, that, that these modern techniques, yeah, definitely improves their fitness levels infinitely. Um, and, and you look at the muscle mass that these birds are getting and the condition that they're getting and, and, and the fact they're also learning to climb. You can teach them to learn to climb, use the wind, use the conditions, all those, because the majority of um, sort of traumatic casualties happen in newly fledged birds and they've they've lost a lot of that maternal or paternal training that naturally happens Mm -hmm. um, between raptors which a lot of people don't really understand how much they do learn in a lot of situations from from their parents um and and so we've got to help them with that to give them a a good chance i think wild raptors fledged wild raptors have a sort of depending on the species and in the part of the country anything from a 30 to a 50 percent survival rate for the first year so i think if we're going to release um a, a, a wild injured bird it's got to have a 30 to 50 percent chance of surviving otherwise it's not fair it's not it's not ethical there's a lot to be said for nature's beauty and simultaneous cruelty in a lot of ways and um yeah no i think that there's a lot there's a lot of good rehab programs that are out there and especially in, in the U S there's, there's quite a few really good rehab places, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's kind of one of those things where, yeah, you want to give the bird the best chance and stuff. I guess I've never really thought about droning or, you know, using things like the Roco and stuff for that though. I mean, that's, that's really cool. I mean, it's pretty ingenuitive really, but it's totally another application I would have never thought of, but just real quick, Go ahead and give people kind of a, a rundown of your of your background. Absolutely. So uh, I guess if you go right back, uh, always had a fascination with with birds, um, birds of prey, raptors. Was around falconry in one way or another, probably from about the age of fourteen, fifteen. Um, I think my first Harris Hawk, which I flew, would have been about the age of eighteen, um, and then flew a lot of occipiters, so a lot of goshawks, sparrowhawks. Um, sort of through through my 20s um went to veterinary school at 18 um in the uk we if you're us listeners it's it's a postgraduate qualification but in in the uk it's an undergraduate qualification so we can we can do veterinary medicine from 18 so graduated in 2023 uh, sorry as a 23 year old in in 20 uh, 2011 and um and and then 
went to specialize in in avian medicine um so pretty quickly went down that route of specialization um and was was fortunate enough to get on a, a very well regarded residency training program with uh with a dr neil forbes who's who's world re- renowned for for his um innovation in 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 um avian medicine and and he also had a big interest in in um in falconry his his grandfather was sort of a early british falconers club member and and he had that background as well so i had sort of six fantastic years t- learning learning with him and and was fortunate enough to stay on at that hospital subsequently so i've been at the same specialist um referral hospital for for 10 years now um and and have a a roughly a 60% avian caseload um, and, and a significant proportion of that are, are birds of prey. Um, so, so really varied. Um, and then from a falconry point of view, unfortunately, as, as the veterinary work that I do is busier and busier and busier and working long hours doing veterinary medicine unfortunately the hours to to fly birds of prey is is much reduced so i haven't flown a bird personally for for three seasons now um i think with covid our workload went up and see staff availability where people getting ill wasn't great so um it's been a, a tricky busy three-year period um but uh looking forward to you'll never never get away from the fact it's i think once you've done it it's it's sort of in your blood isn't it and and flying birds of prey and and i'm very keen to 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 fly to fly something again in the near future but but for me um some of this technology we're talking about is these um sort of row crows and drones it allowed me to fly birds in shorter time frames so before particularly before work I, my window for falconry was usually between sort of six and eight a.m at dawn um you could fly a bird to a, to a row crow and get it fit and have good flights in in a short contained space of time so it although the falconry is incredibly time consuming you're never going to say it's it you can you can make it a, a hobby that fits around work i think everything else fits around falconry but but it <laughs> it makes some some of this technology does make life easier sure well and you know, I mean, from your standpoint too, kind of being torn between multiple worlds, like I am, I, I can totally relate. I mean, we were just talking a little bit ago about some of the healthcare stuff, but no, I mean, yeah, whenever you're, you're constantly being pulled in different directions, it can, it can be a lot harder to fit these other things in, but at least, you know, in your case, it's, it may not be falconry in its purest form per se, but if you're helping out like with rehabbing birds or whatever, and you just got to scratch the itch a little bit. I mean, yeah, there is the possibility of at least being able to, to work out a bird or something with Roco or whatever before. I mean, that that's, I mean, that's cool. At least you get to do something, you know? Absolutely. If I take the responsibility of doing a rehab, peregrine or something then i know it's it's a six-week commitment but often that's going to be in the summer when i've got better daylight um and and can fit that around work a little bit easier and then i don't have the the commitment of having to fly a bird through the winter when i'm not home during the daylight hours so um Mm -hmm. i think that's uh that that's where where i can yeah exactly scratch an itch and, and and still have that close involvement in the falconry community without without um with overstretching myself and and i think it's really important anyone who commits to getting into falconry has the time to do it because if you don't have the time you're just not going to do justice by that bird um and sure I'm, I'm, if that's what i'm preaching to my clients so they've got to put that time commitment i've got to make sure i'm doing the same so um the the i think the, i think the rehab work is a really nice sort of crossover between the two communities and i, I think i'm really a big advocate for falconers to be involved in rehab and conservation i think there's there's always um 
sort of confrontation between falconry and, and the sporting side of that community with conservation and some other organizations and i think if they all learned to work together it would actually be for the benefit of wild birds um and so that's that's one of the messages i try and preach as much as possible yeah i found that a lot of that is i mean you're going to have a little bit of that everywhere no matter what type of thing you're doing community that you're in but i mean there's there's a lot of uh, places that i know that i mean including I, I feel like even our area like where i'm at i mean i think we have a pretty decent relationship with um with our local rehab facility and mm-hmm. and um well for that matter i mean the harris hawk that i just flew this past season i mean got got the rehab center got a call on her whenever i i lost her for a week or two and um you know if it wasn't for them picking her up i mean that I, I would have you know, probably lost that bird and stuff too. So, I mean, it, it, working hand in hand, I do agree. I mean, if, if you've got a good relationship and there's not any friction, um, yeah, I mean, it, it, it goes without saying anytime that people can work together in any shape or form, you usually get a better outcome. Absolutely. But, Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, so I'm, I'm a little curious myself with, I mean, I, anytime I ever encounter people from different countries, I'm always interested to learn more and more about how, the differences are with their education system and, and everything else. I mean, you, you touched very briefly on the difference between what it takes to be, you know, a, a vet here as opposed to the U S I mean, can you go just a little bit more in depth into that process of how long all that takes and what kind of goes into it here as opposed to, you know, other countries? Yeah, I can probably do quite decent comparison with the US because I spent a bit of time at Colorado State University sure. mm-hmm. um, in my final year of education and thoroughly enjoyed my time in Fort Collins. Um, in, in in the UK, yeah, most veterinary students will do it as an undergrad degree. Um, so you can go straight from your school schooling at 18 straight into veterinary medicine qualification it's a five-year degree and at five years you're qualified um, as long as you pass all your nasty examinations you're qualified as a veterinary surgeon Um, and then from there you can go on and specialize much like a a doctor a a human physician will will specialize um, do some internship program do a residency or registrar program as we call it in the u in the uk and and it takes another sort of four to five years to specialize yet further so you could basically spend 10 years in in education for fairly formal education to be, to become a specialist a lot of incredibly good vets stay at a gp they don't choose to specialize they try and they, they do more of a gp type work and, and that's an incredibly important part of the veterinary medicine as well um in in the us the main difference is you can't do a veterinary medicine degree as an undergraduate degree so they do an undergrad which i believe is three years um so they're already at least 21 by the time they go into veterinary medicine maybe a little bit mature more mature um at 21 i think there's a lot of development that goes on in a lot of people between 18 and 21 <laughs> quite a quite a bit yeah yeah so uh i think that is potentially you could say one benefit i think i was a much better student in the last two years of vet school than i was in the first two years um and um i think i think yeah you, you do you do learn a little bit more about yourself as far as education but um yeah so they do an undergrad and then they go into veterinary medicine as a postgrad their veterinary medicine degree in the us is only going to be four years but it is a postgraduate degree so that first year um is of, of, of sort of undergrad vet med in in the uk that they don't do in the in the us but they've already done a three-year degree before so um it takes seven years in comparison to five years in the uk in total um and then the route to specialty is is much the same usually you do an internship or some 
type of year somewhere and then three years in a in a in a residency program um quite a lot of my colleagues who graduated in the uk went to the us for their residency programs and um we've had um a number of, of students from the us actually come and do training programs in the uk so there's quite a bit of bilateral movement across the across the pond um the um and quite a lot of uk veterinary schools now um are avma so what's that the american vet med association i think um accredited so you can you can do your your veterinary degree as a as an american or as a as a as a, an international student in the uk and then be able to practice in the us so i actually sat my my us exam so i could have practiced in the us had i wanted to just to keep those options open to me and every now and then you sort of get this, this thought it might be nice <laughs> to, to see some new areas and, mm-hmm. and and come across and 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 practice over in the states um but um but yeah so i think i think that's really nice um that i had a lot of colleagues um american vets who studied with me in, in at edinburgh because edinburgh is one of the schools that does have a, an American Vet Med Association accreditation. So I think maybe about 20%, 30% of my year was was American students. Um, some of those have stayed in the UK. A lot of them have gone back and I'm still in touch with, with quite a few. And then from my time at Colorado State, I'm still in touch with a lot of veterinarians who I met in that that period as well who are mostly practicing in in the states so it's it's nice to see both sides and i'm over in denver next month at a at a conference um so uh yeah it's uh it's different but i i would i'd hate to say just like falconry um, i'd hate to say one's better than the other it's a different way of doing it um and um i think both 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 um both sides have, have excellent veterinary qualifications um very good schools um i think yeah, the if you the path to sort of specialist medicine, the sort of residency programs, you can specialize in, in anything. Um, so you can specialize in orthopedics, you can specialize in oncology, you can specialize in exotics or avian medicine or or however you'd like to do that. And and so there's all, all the options you would have as a human physician, you have similar options in veterinary medicine. You know, I was surprised a little bit about some of that too, because uh so me and my wife, my wife's also a respiratory therapist. So, okay. um, yeah, we kind of in, inbred a little bit there, but anyway, um, <laughs> we, um, we were griping one night just about, you know, work and, and stuff. And, uh, and she mentioned, she was like, yeah, one of the, one of the girls I work with, we were just talking about going back and being horse chiropractors. And, uh, I was just like, uh, where did that come from? I was like, what? <laughs> so, I mean, so she mentioned that and I think she was only half joking, but at the, at the same, <laughs> at the same time, I was just like, okay, I wonder just out of curiosity what it takes. And I was kind of surprised to see that stuff like you still, you still actually have to have a vet, you know, a veterinary degree and, you know, be a, a vet, you know, and to do a lot of those subspecialties. But, um, yeah, I mean, I, I can only imagine just, almost going into this weird niche, you know, kind of thing. I, I'm, is it like for on, if you're going to really specialize in a lot of that stuff though, I'm sure you probably still have to take on a lot of, of just general, you know, types of, of clientele and cases though. Right. To really make a, a substantial living or. It depends actually. I think, I think less and less. So I think, um, in the UK and the US, there are, dedicated specialist hospitals where you will get people doing 100% oncology or 100% um, internal medicine or 100% diagnostic imaging, ultrasounds and CT scans. Um, and, and yeah, there's it has become a much more specialized market. Um, exotics is a little bit 
um, you do have to do some more general cases. So I can't just do birds, um, mm-hmm. but there are clinics in the US. There's one of my colleagues, Brian Spear in, in, in California, and he is 100% birds. He only treats birds and has an incredibly busy hospital. So you've got to have the population. Well, um, and that's what I was yeah. wondering too, is if, I mean, you could get away with that more certainly in, in bigger population areas and in bigger cities i'm sure than you know say a small rural town in southern indiana or something absolutely i think yeah (laughs) if you were going to go in rural wyoming or montana somewhere in the world i would love to live um you i don't think you'd have that market you'd have to have to do some general medicine as well sure um but i I get to do 100 percent exotics which is is perfect for me um i'll see some exotic mammals and some zoo species as well and see a few reptiles um and so i get that variety i think it's variety which is what attracts me to that to the specialty i'm able to be a surgeon as well as an imager as well as a a medic um still so i have some general practice but my general practice is in different species um to the to the average domestic dog or cat so um it's uh yeah but you can you can really specialize now and and the clients want it as well and they're going if they've got um a a pet or a a working animal it be it a horse or a bird of prey um and and they want to get it treated they want to see someone who's got the expertise they expect it and they're they're prepared to pay for that service um and and um and so if if the general practitioner sort of gets the limit of their knowledge then they have that option to refer on and just in the same way as if i had a knee injury and i went to see my general practitioner and they said yep you've you've maybe done your ligaments i wouldn't want him to be doing my knee surgery (laughs) i want to see an orthopedic surgeon that's what your average pet owner now wants and and that's what they're expecting hmm yeah well i'm like i said that's that's very interesting i i really wish honestly that there were a lot more readily available specialists around all parts of of the u.s i mean the the u.s is is definitely <laughs> quite a bit bigger than say your uh your your england or whatever i mean i you know it goes without saying but i, I wish that there was a lot more avian specialists in particular readily available in, in a larger part of our country i think that there's definitely um kind of a a need for that and type of thing and same same thing with um you know, herp specialists and things like that. I mean, I think that we, we don't have near enough of those. So, I mean, I can see that being definitely more lucrative in, in some areas as opposed to mm-hmm. others, but you know, it's difficult. There's a, there's some really big clinics now in the U S I think it's Arizona exotics is, has got four or five clinics, pure exotic veterinary medicine, but affluent, big metropolitan parts of the u.s where there's a big population to provide the clients and um yeah it is difficult where i think traditionally you're going to have probably more falconers in your more rural areas uh because they've got the land to fly on and the Mm -hmm. access but then you're not going to get probably the vets in those rural areas and and whilst my clientele come from anywhere if you you know the united kingdom anywhere from london down to the south coast across to bristol up to birmingham which in the uk is a big area but actually that's only really a two and a half hour radius um (laughs) whereas if you i guess if you're in fort collins colorado two and a half hour radius won't even get you out the state um (laughs) so it's it's uh it's uh it's very different from that point of view and i know uh, when i was practicing there and 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 was it well not practicing i was studying um in in colorado 
Friday, there was people coming across state. Um, and I, I know some of the specialist avian vets in the States are flying across state to treat birds at different places where there, where there just isn't that, that specialist service local and, and, and the clients want to, to get that care. There's, there's a lot of traveling involved, which when you've got a sick bird, is not always ideal because no. they need treatment then and they need treatment immediately. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And ideally not, not have that stress of a drive or, mm-hmm. a, or a flight even. Um, yeah, no, yeah. I, for sure. And yeah, like I said, I wish there's, I mean, there, it doesn't matter what kind of care, whether it's for animals, people, I mean, we're only, I think going to keep getting more and more of a shortage over the years. It's going to be a lot harder to convince people is each passing year. I think, unfortunately to, get into these fields mm. i mean i think it'd probably be a lot easier from the animal side than the people side but yeah. <laughs> but you know i don't it's difficult there's su- there's a demand as far as there's lots of vets who want to specialize in exotic animals which is good there's there's a lot of people who want to do it i think there's a lack of training programs um and um in in the uk there is only one residency training program in avian medicine and surgery which is the one we do at our hospital and the one i teach on um so we're only taking one person every 18 months. So it's going to build very oh, wow. slowly um, the numbers of people. Um, in the US, I'm not sure how many training programs there are um, in, in ex- even in exotic medicine. Um, I would hazard a guess at maybe 10 or 15. Um, but in, when you've got 330 million, we were saying as a population over that vast area, that's not going to produce that many people either um it's going to take a long time for that to build up but compared to 30 years ago when there was only one or two um it's come a long way <laughs> Avi- avian medicine's come a long way in the last 30 years yeah and then you've got to have people like you said like people like yourself that are willing to teach and want mm-hmm. to teach and you know i mean that's that's another thing that's going to contribute to shortages and stuff too and then you know you have to worry about the uh sometimes the the quality of you know, what people know coming out of some of these programs and stuff too. There's, there's all kinds of, of considerations, but, but yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm happy that, that people like yourself are willing to take on the challenge of training these newer generations of, of people. And, and I hope that, that more and more keep coming in, but in regards to, you know, your, your falconry in particular, I know you kind of briefly touched on, you know, the age frame that you kind of got your first bird and stuff. I mean, don't necessarily have to go into a lot of the hunting experience per se, but I mean, just talk about some of the, the first birds with a little bit more detail that you had and, and kind of the things that you learned initially. Yeah. So I think, um, I think our, our access to falconry in, in the UK is very different to the U S I'm sure you've covered that maybe in the past. Mm-hmm. Um, but we don't have a formal mentorship or sponsorship type program in the same way. Um, so a lot of that, is done informally and and um luckily i've had some some really good mentors um who um have have certainly helped me massively with my falconry um, and taught me an awful lot um so it's first harris hawk taught me a, a lot about understanding behavior um understanding um the reason why a bird's acting in a certain way and how you can adjust what you're doing to to correct that with positive reinforcement the way you're presenting the food the way you're handling a bird just some of the very basic safety stuff is is just the way you hold it the safety position on the glove all all that that sort of that that it really vitally important um teaching is is you're, you're just based 
trusting your mentor that you're getting that right and I was lucky um, and, and fortunately with my work I just come in contact with so many well-regarded falconers on such a regular basis I'm always picking things up from from falconers with how they do things um, new techniques um, and and um, and just trying to learn all the time just trying to be a sponge and absorb absorb from all these people who are who are practicing excellent falconry to to see how they do things and and how they train their birds because there is so much variety there is not one way to do things um and um and i think i think that's where i've been very fortunate because I, I just speak to so many different people like you come to an event like this where you speak to three four hundred people um, about their falconry experiences you, you can learn so much um so i was very fortunate um yeah to have a lot of a lot of fun and success with sort of my early birds and i think but going from a harris orc to, to flying at something like a goss orc um it was, it was a real challenging transition <laughs> i think i think harris hawks teach you a lot of bad habits um you can get away with with things um with, with harris hawks so you can't certainly get away with goss hawks um and when you when you suddenly realize you've got a sort of a frustrated um a frustrated goss hawk that that can that can get a bit fruity um so um i think i think this is where where technology can really help so sort of draglers pullers sort of the bullex machines that, that danny carter is demonstrating here is just such a nice way to get simulated hunting experience for a raptor that, that is psychological it's, it's enrichment all these things are enrichment and and can just make a huge difference to it to a bird's mental well-being if you can get these quality guaranteed quality simulated hunting flights um which are less weather dependent and everything else to 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 build fitness i think this is this so that's i learned, I learned a lot about that with goshawks um that their their mentality what they're what they're happy doing how you have to enrich them is is very different from a, from a harris hawk their memories maybe not quite as good they need <laughs> their positive reinforcement lessons need repeating more times for them to to know what you're doing and and you've just got to handle them differently um and moved on to flying some small things um so so sort of merlin and um sparrowhawks where very high metabolic rates different management from a fight as far as diet um to how you how often you feed them you might be flying them twice a day and feeding twice a day rather than once a day um yeah completely different experience again um so i've been very fortunate with i guess the the variety of birds i've flown and, and been taught different lessons by each bird um and and I think I've enjoyed every species. I think um, at the moment, I think probably my, my favourite bird to fly has, has probably been the Merlin. I think from a personality point of view, they have a lovely little personality. Uh, and whilst I think the relationship you have with a bird of prey is probably slightly different to the relationship you have with your pet dog, um, <laughs> I would I would say there's a curiosity and and sort of inquisitiveness of a Merlin's personality, which was was kind of endearing. Um, so I thought they were they were they were fantastic little birds um, and, and really interesting, and certainly taught you how to swing a lure well um sort of some, some lazy lure swinging that you could sort of get away with with a with a geosaker um you could not get away with with a, with a merlin with a sort of so agile and 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 little pocket rockets they were that, that was fantastic awesome yeah and no, i uh yeah it's it's always fun getting other people's interpretations of certain species because i don't like i i've told i've talked about this a few different times before but I mean, I, the, the first birds I saw being flown in falconry were goshawks myself. Mm. And so, you know, I've, I kind of got overly desensitized to just that, I don't know, stigma that surrounds, seems to surround goshawks, for mm. example. 
to the point now where I'm like, I, you know, I thought about flying one a couple seasons ago, but then like, uh, um, <laughs> uh, the need for a new septic system kind of, kind of, uh, changed my plans. But, uh, but yeah, no, I mean, I overall though, like, I think you're either an exhibitor guy kind of, or you're not. And sometimes you're just a long winger or you're not. I mean, there are a lot of guys too that I've talked to that kind of like it all, but they still have that little bit of personal preference over everything. I mean, I'm still a fan mostly of Kestrels personally. I like, I like tiny long wings as well, Mm. but, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's all about personality. I've always found that you can, you, you can kind of once you judge a person's personality you can almost instantly tell which kind of bird they're going to prefer to fly it's yeah. it's kind of weird yeah. um, has it kind of been the same for you that you've noticed that i think i think to some respects i think the biggest thing here is yes it's personality and, and what you're going to work well with. I, I see that a lot with dogs as well um i've found very much with dogs that i seem to work better with bitches than dogs now i have a really lovely um <laughs> ma- male english setter but but i've found my wife's bitches far easier to work with it's just i think that's personality thing with yeah. me for whatever reason um i mean assuming the, you've got the prey for whatever of course and this but, is i think yeah. this is the big thing it's the yeah. it's the it's the country it's it's trying to fly the wrong species in the wrong environment if you've got a load of woodland and marginal areas and you try and fly a, a big long wing in it you're going to get frustrated if you if you've got um really open open country um with miles of views with no with no wind turbines no electric pylons it'd be such a shame not to fly a long wing on it Mm -hmm. and i think i think this is the big thing is is it's it's what you like but it's also what country you've got to fly um and obviously you can you can adapt you can you can use things like row crows to fly a long wing in a closed space what we've got here we've got an arena that's maybe um a few hundred meters squared and you can get a bird fit and stimulated and enriched flying in, in such a small space fantastic but it's it's not really where they're developed they've they've evolved to fly it's the although although some of the some of the falcon species are, are remarkably widespread now in the uk sort of some very urban environments and all the margins and all the way to the open moorland it's uh it's amazing how well some of the wild falcons are doing so but yeah i think i think that's the big thing is yeah you've got to have a species that you enjoy because otherwise what's the point and i think i hate this thing of that you hear a sort of starter bird first bird i'm going to start with this um i think just start with the right bird whatever bird you like and and yes some birds are easier than others and you but but there's no point in having thinking of a bird as a two-year project as a stepping stone to something else because that bird you've bought lives 15 20 years so you've got to provide be expecting to provide for that for for that period of time or, or at least have a a plan for that bird otherwise otherwise you're not doing good by that first bird and you'd be better off getting the bird you originally want the species you originally wanted in the first place um so as long as you've got good mentors that can help you and has experience with that species well i think that's very key too. what you just said is that i mean there's there's a lot of people that have a lot of varying opinions on what types of birds people should start with i mean as you know predominantly in the u.s most people start with red tails yep. and for good reason and but like even some people even like with their with the second bird still prefer not you know people not to do like say american kestrels and things like that and this is this is one of those very opinionated topics in a way but i mean i touch on this some with people and but like as as far as you know i i'm i'm kind of 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 a of a mindset that if you have a mentor that's very experienced with a certain species of bird I, I don't think it's necessarily a wrong thing for for someone to learn on a certain species if they have very good guidance and mentorship. 
I mean, there's, there's guys that I know that, that live out West in the, in the U S that still haven't ever flown a red tail. They, they learned on, you know, like, like a peregrine, for example, if their state yeah. lets them, you know, have that as a first bird or whatever, but their mentor was like new long wings. And you know, so, I yeah. mean, in that, in those kind of scenarios, I think that that's okay. I mean, you, you, you don't want someone that is not experienced with a certain species trying to teach it. I mean, that kind of defeats the purpose too. Absolutely. I, th- I think that's completely right. And, and yeah, having, having, if you've got the right mentor, who's going to spend time. I and mean, I, I think it's very hard to be mentored um, remotely. I think, I think that's one of the biggest things is finding a mentor. You can physically spend time with the bird and that mentor together in the same place because that mentor is not going to be able to advise correctly if they're not seeing the behavior and the response to that bird you can't describe it and it there's the subtleties between being um unfit versus unresponsive versus low in low in energy are quite overlapping some of the the, the signs that, that bird's going to show and, and that's where the experience comes in and i think um i think that's where where having a mentor actually seeing you fly the bird is so important. And I think the internet has made um, people sort of in in a position where they can garner a lot of information without having to meet people. But I still (laughs) think that face-to-face mentorship is, is, is incredibly important. For sure. No, I a hundred percent agree, but well, let's, let's shift back real quick. I'm kind of more towards, let's shift back more towards the vet side of things. Cause I'm kind of curious to see, what kind of differences, if any, there are between the types of volumes of things that you see as main issues with with raptors in particular here as opposed to the U.S. or if it's very similar? I mean, do you I mean, first of all, I guess we can go ahead and, and talk a little bit about the whole avian influenza issue mm. and kind of what's I mean, what what what's the deal with it? You know, why, why has it been so bad the last couple of years you think? And yeah, let's, yeah. With avian influenza is, um, is a, is a concerning topic to anyone who's keeping birds, whether they're keeping farm chickens or whether they're keeping pet birds or whether they're keeping falconry birds. It's, it's been a bad year in, in continental Europe and, and, and the United Kingdom with, with avian influenza. Um, like any, flu virus avian influenza is capable of mutating and it does regularly mutate um every time that virus replicates there's a chance of it changing somewhat and sometimes those changes will give it a a favorable um change in the way that virus acts or interacts with the environment which makes it either more infectious or survive longer in the environment or whatever it is so we've currently got a, a virus which is very infectious that has a very long environmental persistence um so uh, it's shed in feces or respiratory secretion so after that 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 liquid leaves a bird um it is infectious in the environment for a set time that that time is increased with this particular um strain of virus that we're seeing so the chance that that virus then comes in contact with another host animal another bird is much higher and therefore it just is is the the whole outbreak is is continuing for a much longer time than normal so even influenza in in the uk used to be a very seasonal thing um we we have a migration of birds that come across in the autumn period in the fall um so september october they interact with our wild birds they bring avian influenza with them um and then bridging species or other species can become infected and captive birds can potentially be infected but as soon as the weather warmed up in the spring 
um, the the environment was less favorable for the virus to survive, and the virus was had shorter. Um, persistence in the environment with high temperature and dry weather and and so the virus would gently drift off and we'd stop seeing cases usually by March sometimes into April this year we had a case our most recent case was two days ago in Devon so we're we're still seeing cases in captive birds in July and huge numbers of cases still in wild birds so this this virus is just it survived the weather change we've had an incredibly hot period of weather in the last few weeks and the virus is still um, transmitting through wild birds at this point so it's it's a bit unprecedented um, as far as even influenza in the UK um, and it, it has massive implications from the risk to your birds if you're flying birds um, and they're going to come into contact with wild birds the risk of transmission of virus is going to be there um, inadvertent transmission in the food is there the risk that just wild birds come into where you're weathering and keeping your birds and transmit virus to your birds is there so so falconers are having to practice very stringent biosecurity to keep their birds safe and then for people who who have business with falconry and that may be breeding birds and exporting to to other countries overseas um it has implications there as far as testing that needs to be done pre-export health inspections that need to be done or in the past we've had complete bans on exports to certain countries um which which financially and economically is is really not good devastating um, yeah and, and and it's the same with obviously from a government level um they're very concerned about being able to um export food produce so poultry um and uh and the fact and the effect that the avian influenza outbreak will have on that and then from sort of a more local level we're obviously very concerned about um about our clients and their ability to to keep business and 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 obviously keep their birds healthy um it's really affected what we can do as well so i was talking all about that wild rehab stuff that we do and it's really important to me um and and maintaining a um sort of a service um to 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 wild birds and rescue centers and charities um we have to be very careful about bringing wild birds into the hospital now because obviously any wild bird could potentially be carrying avian influenza virus and and whilst it might have a traumatic injury you don't know if it's carrying carrying virus as well and particularly when you're talking about species like waterfowl and gulls that can carry virus without looking apparently sick um, in the early stages. Um, so we have very strict rules about quarantining birds before they can come into the hospital with wild birds. It's affecting our ability to do trauma surgery on wild birds, fracture repairs, these sorts of procedures that we'd normally do sort of pro bono uh, to, to try and um, provide a really nice service to some of the charities. We, we're, we're really restricted on what we can do because obviously for our clients' birds, we can't risk exposing them to virus in the hospital. So we're having, it's, it's really affecting our work as well. Um, some of the wildlife charities here stopped taking in wild birds because they were seeing cases in the wildlife charities. So it's, it's really challenging. We're moving from a, a sort of a situation at the moment where we had to sort of try and stamp out avian influenza for the short months where it arrived in the winter. And then for the large parts of the year, we didn't have any avian influenza to a situation where at the moment it's looking like we may even have to learn to live with avian influenza and to change our strategies. Um, at the moment, we don't vaccinate in the UK. You can only vaccinate under license and, and we don't do that. But it's, it's are we going to have to start thinking about vaccinating captive birds? Are we going to have to think about 
really improving our biosecurity um when when there's been cases of avian influenza this year and they've been investigated it's sort of been biosecurity breaches issues with um sort of personnel moving between units without it being documented or without changing their boots like they should all these little things we're having to be so much hotter on and and you really see why biosecurity is important at the moment mm-hmm. yeah i'm is there anything in particular that or, or do you see any higher incidents for the most part of natural like uh, just kind of natural a little bit higher immunity with with some of these viruses and some of these different i mean what what makes like water certain species of waterfowl and and certain you know types of birds a little bit more resistant to these strands than say your your raptors is it just lack of exposure yeah so it might be lack of exposure The, the virus has evolved to live within certain species without killing them um Mm -hmm. so for a virus you think how am i going to survive i'm a virus how am i going to survive well i want to live in an animal for long enough that i can be transmitted to other animals without killing that animal so i kill that animal too quickly i don't have a chance to transfer to another animal that's sort of the way viruses tend to evolve um and we're seeing it I hate to go back to COVID and there's lots of theories with COVID, but you sort of, you see it with the COVID virus. You said the C word, not me. Yeah, I know, but it's, it's, and this was predicted it would probably happen this way years ago. Sure. That it becomes slightly less dangerous. The the, the severity of the disease seems to be decreasing. And obviously vaccination may be having an effect on that as well, but, but it's becoming more infectious. So each new mutation that we see is this one transmits slightly easier than the last one. This has got a higher infectious rate. Every new mutation then, um, yeah, is naturally more infectious, slightly less um, mortality. And, and, and that's the way a lot of viruses will evolve. So a lot of these avian influenza viruses have evolved to a fact that they can live within waterfowl. That waterfowl can migrate whilst carrying the virus. So it doesn't kill it quickly. It's still got the strength to migrate a great distance. And then it may succumb to the virus if it becomes immunosuppressed after a migration or it gets stressed with the breeding season or mixing with other birds. And that creates a physiological stress and then disease susceptibility. But it wants to be able to transmit around the world. So um, so that's why it, the virus has evolved in certain species to cause mild, moderate disease, still allowing them to migrate and, and, and transmit virus. Um, and then it comes into, it contacts a species that maybe doesn't have that immunity or or, or it's, it's not its original species that sort of carries it. And then it's dramatic, severe disease. Mm-hmm. And, and you'll hear about low pathogenic and high pathogenic virus. And they, they always talk about high pathogenic avian influenza. Obviously, that's the one that instantly you think, well, it's high pathogenic. It must be more serious. That doesn't necessarily apply to raptors. That only really applies to production poultry. So when they work out whether a virus is low path or high path, it's basically how much mortality will it cause in chickens. It's not to do with how much mortality it will cause in raptors so a low pathogenic virus in chickens could be high mortality in raptors Mm. and in raptors it seems to cause they are one of the more susceptible species it seems to cause severe encephalitis so brain issues Mm. um, and very bad neurological signs Um, but some avian influenza virus it can actually be really difficult some of the low pathogenic avian influenza virus when it's in poultry or it's in waterfowl it's actually quite difficult to tell it apart from other respiratory viruses or even infection bacterial infections sometimes so the signs that signs can overlap quite a lot 
Um, and a low pathogenic virus only needs a minor mutation to then become high pathogenic potentially. So that's why they're tracking virus all the time. So there's always surveillance. If they pick up more than three dead birds in one place, they will test them. They will see if the virus is mutating, how that virus is changing, um, and and is it becoming more dangerous. And obviously the big one of the big concerns with avian influenza at the moment, there's been very, very few human cases with this strain. There was one case in the UK reported where this person had incredibly close contact with infected wildlife, uh, sorry, infected wildfowl, uh, or no, waterfowl, I don't think they were wildfowl, I think they were just um, pet waterfowl, um, and, and contracted a mild influenza virus of the, of the H5N1 virus. But in the past, it has caused quite high mortality H5N1, um, even influenza in, in Asia, in East Asia, where there's bird markets a lot of people are slaughtering preparing food in their own homes um and and they're obviously getting a big viral exposure and and the big concern is that a host someone or an animal will be infected with a human virus influenza virus and even influenza virus at the same time they will reorganize mix and you'll get a bad virus pop out um, that, that has the risk of spreading from human to human and that's not happening at the moment and the risk to humans at the moment with this avian influenza virus is low that's the government assessment it's low risk at the moment but if it was to mutate if it was to change that's why we have to keep a very close eye and and equally why these things are important so it's not just animal health it's this whole one health animal health is important with human health as well those things overlap and are very intrinsically linked um so that's why they, they trace avian influenza incredibly carefully gotcha yeah no it makes it makes perfect sense especially with, like you mentioned with these viruses and a lot of which are so transmissible between you know humans and animals alike it's mm -hmm. it's yeah i mean it it's hard to really keep tabs on on them mutating because it's inevitable in a lot of ways i mean a lot of these viruses that are able to be harbored in in animals i mean you could theoretically you know do every precaution in the world for for people but i mean it's still going to mutate and still change and stuff and then get retransmitted back again no matter how good immune system wise people you know people are there's still a good chance that these viruses are going to be harbored and animals mutate and then eventually come back in our population somehow anyway but a lot of people i don't think realize that a lot so that's kind of was i was curious as to the subtle differences maybe in some of these ones that are that are harbored more in certain species of animals why they're more susceptible and stuff but yeah but yeah so yeah certain diseases are very specialists live in certain species and the chances of them jumping from bird to mammal because birds you've got to remember birds are run at a warmer temperature the average body temperature of a bird i we do celsius is like 40 to 41 celsius mm. humans run about 37 so it actually takes quite a specialist virus to be able to live in both hosts both an, an avian host and a and a human host but certain viruses can do that and and they're the ones we worry about those ones that can jump species to species some things naturally won't but but some things do have that ability gotcha well and just out of curiosity too i mean in just from your point of view from your practice over the years what have you seen to be like the the biggest issues with raptors i mean has it been more lead poisoning has it been more you know certain viruses i mean what what exactly do you see is is the common biggest issue with raptors we have a few um and you've mentioned a couple um so we have traumas i think if you keep and fly 
um captive raptors you will get the occasional traumatic incident that may be hitting a stock fence that may be it happens yeah yeah. these things happen Mm -hmm. um it's no different to running your pet dog and it's sticking a foot down a rabbit hole and getting traumatic injury these Mm -hmm. things happen Mm -hmm. um and um and so you get those um you get fractures you get wounds so that there's that side of thing um and then as far as infectious disease um or sort of bacterial fungal infections we we get aspergillus we keep a lot of species in the uk which are aspergillus sensitive um so your goshawks your geofalcons i think one of the other ones is your juvenile red tail hawk they're aspergillus um sensitive and although we don't um we don't fly a lot of red tails in the uk compared to the us um i I imagine the the people flying um red tails in the us see aspergillus periodically um but we see a lot of it we breed a lot of birds for the middle eastern market in the uk so we've got a lot of geofalcons semen donors and and um and imprints and and we we will do we'll deal with aspergillus cases in those um particularly in this sort of warm hot humid weather that we just had that we, we've already seen a spike in aspergillus in the last couple of weeks coming into the hospital um and then yeah we get some some viral things so you get your foodborne viruses so particularly things like herpes virus it's particularly transmitted by feeding pigeon um and then you can get other little viruses that that get transmitted in bird species such as adenovirus so you get these viral diseases as well and then you get sort of your pododermatitis or bumblefoot cases um so i'd say yeah it's difficult to put a percentage on it we we the the nice thing about our practice is because we breed a lot of birds here you see all the neonatal juvenile problems and you see the breeding bird problems as well, the reproductive disease or poor reproductive performance that we investigate. And then we have a lot of flying birds as well. So then you start seeing the flying bird trauma issues. So we have very varied caseload. Whereas if you, I guess if you're flying a lot of passage birds um, or ice birds and, and wild take birds, you're not get you're not seeing as many um, sort of reproductive and neonatal disease. Um, so we, it's a real variety. It is a real variety. And, and you get seasonal things. So sort of last couple of months, I've been dealing with all the repro stuff. And now we'll get a lot of the sort of warm weather aspergillacy stuff. And then we'll start getting as it gets towards the flying seasons, we'll start getting the trauma stuff. Yeah. Um, so it, we, we do see seasonal patterns. Yeah. I mean, just out of curiosity too. I mean, I've, I've seen kind of some issues with this, with, um, you know, other friends, birds and, and, um, you know, I've, I've had some unfortunate issues, you know, incidents with, um, infections, you know, just mm-hmm. out, out of nowhere, killing a, a bird that I've had or, and things like that. But particularly in regards to Asper, because it mm-hmm. seems to be, like you said, one of the more prevalent issues, especially in your, in your jeers and your, your goshawks and yep. things like that. But is there anything that really differentiates other than, I mean, you, you've got your, usually your um your respiratory symptoms you know with the heavy breathing the panning and things like that but i mean is there anything symptom wise with with birds that have asper that oftentimes can overlap or kind of mislead i mean the only surefire way usually to figure out exactly what's going on is to get a necropsy done like after your bird has, has has died or something i know but I mean, what are some of the symptoms that are commonly that can commonly overlap, like from Asper to say your West Nile or, you know, some of these other viral issues? I'm just I'm just curious because it seems like that's kind of been an issue with sometimes with, you know, either 
birds getting misdiagnosed sometimes and things like that so yeah well we're really lucky we don't have west nile here yet um although we have west nile vectors and there is west nile in continental europe so at some point we are probably going to see west nile in the uk so we're, we're not looking forward to that one and that's another thing we're monitoring closely um I got West Nile when I was in Colorado, so I understand West Nile. <laughs> um, too much, too much time down by the river with mosquitoes. I yeah. think. Um, but um, yeah, so I guess you, it's a really good question with regards to the aspergillus because you have your sort of classical aspergillus symptoms, so respiratory signs, maybe loss and change of voice if it's affecting the tracheal syringeal bottom of the trachea area. Um, but you get aspergillus cases, particularly in birds that aren't that are breeding birds or birds that aren't being flown at that particular time where you actually won't see respiratory symptoms. Um, you've got to remember birds have such an efficient respiratory tract. It's like 10 times more efficient than mammalian respiratory system that they can have quite severe aspergillus infection before they start showing respiratory signs, particularly if they're not being exerted. So if they're flying hard and you're like row crowing them every day, they'll start showing the respiratory signs sooner because they're being exerted and at high, um, high athletic performance. But if they are in the breeding season or in a, a molting or in a, gap between flying you may not actually see respiratory symptoms as your first symptoms of aspergillus so you'll see a bird that maybe might go off its food change in fecal color maybe will get green green urates um uh, might lose weight um quite non-specific symptoms that could be any type of infection i think this is sort of the take-home message for my clients when i discuss this is the first sign that something's not right change in appetite change in the feces change in the body condition it's losing weight when you can't explain it or you're having to feed it more food to keep it on a level weight get it investigated at that point because that's the point where you've got a good chance for treatment success if you wait until it's showing the respiratory signs or things have progressed further waited even 48 hours then then your, your prognosis is not as good mm -hmm. um so from so once we see those signs and, and, and aspergillus can can affect all sorts of parts of the respiratory system and actually other parts of the body as well but if it is in the trachea for example down at the bottom of the trachea it's blocking the airway quite quickly the aspergillus lesion so they're going to get respiratory signs pretty quickly if it's in the lung where you're gas exchange is happening mm -hmm. um you're going to get a bird that shows respiratory symptoms pretty quickly because if the lungs affected they they show breathing issues very soon in the in the disease process but if the aspergillus is in the air sacs which is often the first place the aspergillus starts mm -hmm. um they 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 often won't show a great deal of respiratory disease early on and so that's where an early endoscopic examination or we have a ct scanner a cat scanner um which which allows us to look at the whole bird's respiratory system in really good detail uh, without in, any invasive test um you can pick up aspergillus at an early stage and that's where your treatment successes are good and we've got birds that we put endoscopes in we biopsy the air sacs take a bit of the lesion and then you look at it under the microscope you can see aspergillus there you get them treated early and they those birds actually have a really good treatment success we've got much better medications for aspergillus now than we did 10 years ago um we have the original aspergillus treatments they didn't kill aspergillus they just stopped it replicating so you, your body's immune system still had to do a lot of the work whereas now the aspergillus drugs we've got are what we call fungicidal so they kill the fungus not just 
stop it developing and growing any further so we have much better success rates and lower toxicities with the treatment because in the old days it used to we cause as much toxicity with the treatment as sometimes you would you would actually fix the aspergillus but the drugs are definitely better techniques have improved diagnosed we can diagnose at an earlier stage with some of the new technology that we've got um using sort of human grade scanning systems so um so the prognosis is better if you if you can diagnose it early and and we've had birds return to absolute full function um after cases of aspergillus which drugs you i mean what's the uh like the generic brand name of the, of yeah, the drugs that, that you prescribe most for those so we're using voriconazole uh, okay. which is a later generation azole and antifungal drug um traditionally we used to use itraconazole mm-hmm. um where we saw probably more toxicity and less treatment success and more resistance to treatment so we're using a lot of voriconazole now and voriconazole used to be branded by pfizer um under a vfend brand um and because it was the the original drug it was expensive just like all drugs are and then where patent ended and there's now generics so right. the cost of treatment is it's certainly in the uk i'm not sure i'm sure it'll be the same in the states mm-hmm. but the cost of treatment has dropped as well so where you'd be talking like a thousand dollars for a course of treatment previously you're talking 150 right so it, it becomes much more affordable as well um what what are your thoughts i mean i know there are some vets that are and some people that even kind of do like they'll get a new bird and if they either whether it's you know obviously you're gonna you're gonna keep a bird if you buy one cap for bread or whatever but i mean as far as even wild birds and they decide okay yeah we're gonna yeah i'm gonna stick with this bird for for the long haul or whatever um i know there's some people that'll even prophylactically you know, treat. I mean, what are your thoughts on that? We try and keep away from it mm-hmm. um, unless we absolutely have to. So there are occasional circumstances. I think it's medically justifiable to use prophylaxis. Um, but if you talk about a global one health thing, again, we talk about antibiotic resistance, superbugs. Fun- you can have the exactly the same, same with fungal thing, and fungal yeah, infection. Okay. So if you're exposing low levels of fungus, like non disease levels um to antifungal drugs the whole time they are going to develop resistance gotcha. and then when you have your real case you're not going to be able to treat it and, and that can that can happen fairly swiftly so um like if, if i gave you an example of when i might use a prophylactic it might be say a gear a young gear falcon breaks its leg um and i do surgery to fix that um and so it's going to have an anesthetic it's going to be hospitalized in a strange environment Very for two or three days yeah. it's going to have some stress mm-hmm. that's a bird that would benefit from aspergillus prophylaxis or I had a client the other week give me a call because the neighboring farmer started combining with upwind of where he was keeping his falcons and the dust levels that was hitting the buildings was massive um the birds were stressed because of the noise their breathing was instantly changed because of the dust inhalation those those deer falcons that were there would have had a much higher risk of developing aspergillus so we did use prophylaxis in those very specific cases but if you're talking about like peregrines and non-aspergillus sensitive species or or just normal birds at the start of training that we won't be using prophylaxis um, because it's yeah it's it's not not justifiable use and, and to put it into context at the moment in the UK there's legislation sorry not in the UK in the EU there's legislation at the moment being um, proposed that's going to hugely restrict veterinary access to antibiotic and antifungal drugs to the point where some people on the extreme side of the argument want to ban antibiotics in in animals really um, so if we don't 
practice in a responsible way, we're going to lose access to these drugs in in their entirety, uh, which is going to have a huge effect on welfare. Um, but they're looking from a one health human point of view where multiple resistant infections are killing and how many hundreds of thousands of people every year um, worldwide. So they're obviously compared to a few people's GF Falcons versus the One Health for a lot of people, they don't really see that withdrawing the drugs as an issue so um yeah that's why we're we're so careful and this is why when you ring up your doctor uh your veterinary doctor and say oh can i have some antibiotics for this problem they're going to say no bring your bird in we need to examine it we need to make sure it actually needs these drugs before we prescribe them same with the antifungals yeah yeah i've had um i've had a vet go ahead and just prescribe me some antibiotics i i, I mean i told him i wouldn't use them unless i absolutely needed mm -hmm. them but uh just in case you know like <laughs> You know, I've had um, incidents with, you know, feral cats sometimes and, uh, yeah. you know, Harris hawks. And, of course, if you don't get antibiotics on board sometimes, you know, you, you obviously know way more about this than I do. But, you know, yeah. that, that nasty strand of bacteria that, that's carried in, you know, the mouths of cats and yeah. stuff can, can kill a bird within 24 hours sometimes if it's not treated. Yeah. And there's things like that. But, I mean, I um, that, that's that's very interesting. And, and um, I'm, I'm glad that uh, I asked you that because I... I've always been kind of curious. I mean, I figured any kind of microorganism over time with evolution can, can build up any kind of resistance to, I mean, they're just like any other type of living thing. Right. Yeah. So yeah, no, I, that's, it's very interesting stuff. But before we, uh, before we wrap things up, I do want to continue the trend though, of getting a, um, a favorite story of yours or a favorite uh, memory of a particular bird or um, an experience that you've had or just anything like that in general that is kind of the st always sticks there, there's always a good story either with a bird or a hunting experience or something yeah. that that a falconer has so i'm going to give two um i think two clinical cases i dealt with but they were they were falconry birds so uh there's there's they were both fractures both wing fractures one was a was a little tearsal peregrine and it was an absolute favorite bird of this not just the falconer but the whole falconer's family it was like the bird they all liked to watch fly they really liked it and it it was stooping in um on on um a moorland area and and um it sort of stooped into the heather um but within the heather there was a, a big rock um, and it hit this rock with its wing and, and had the most awful break um, at the bottom of its um, humerus and also the bottom of its radius and ulna, so around the elbow. It had fractures either side of the elbow, huge fractures. And we have a general rule. Um, if the fracture is is too close to the joint, when, when you try and repair it, the callus, the healing bone, will then interfere with the joint and, and the risk of that bird never returning to function is is really high so we had we sort of took the x-rays and we sat back and we had a really honest discussion and said what well, and i said very honestly i i don't think this bird's gonna fly properly again i think i think the injury is too severe it's got three bones that are broken either side of the elbow joint it's not going to do well i don't think it's going to fly um as a as a proper falconry bird again um at best i might be able to to repair it to the point it could maybe go into a breeding project so you like the bird you've flown it for many seasons you like its genetics and its bloodline it may be able to be a bird that you could use for breeding so he said no i want to give it every chance do what you can so we, we fixed the bird and um did the surgery and and um 
sort of three or four weeks later did our post-operative check and he drove this bird nine hours this bird came nine hours overnight from the moors where they were flying in scotland down to us overnight um and so we treated it um and came back three or four weeks later took some x-rays i was like oh that doesn't actually look too bad fine it might do a little bit better than i thought and then i didn't hear from the from the client for about six months and six months later he sent me this picture of it flying back up in scotland couldn't really tell that it ever had the injury and I was like wow and isn't it it's not so much what we did but just birds ability to heal was incredible like it was it was to the point where you might have even been thinking about amputating the wing it was that severe and <laughs> um and this bird's now f- had flown three more seasons and is is back to normal so I think that's wonderful it's just the picture and it's it was that personal story it was the family's favorite bird and to get that bird back flying is is wonderful and then there's a bird that flies at Valley as well and I'm sure um they won't mind me saying because they announced it on the on the the tunnel yesterday but there was a bird that a couple of seasons ago again another wing fracture um really severe wasn't very it was a humoral fracture it was a nasty fracture and and did surgery and, and that bad bird's back as one of the best birds at Valley now and one of the best birds in the hunt race and, and flying um fantastically well so every time I see that bird flying I'll, I think it'll probably fly today I, I I look at that bird in the air and just think that's that's fantastic it's, it's just great you can get some of these birds back doing what they do well um so I get I get more joy out of that getting clients birds back flying than than probably any of my my falconry stories but, but that's where I get my my real my real kicks no that's from seeing that. that yeah no that's that's great I'm I we don't often get you know that that other perspective it's always a person's birds or whatever so i mean that's cool that you offered those things up as mm-hmm. as as that sort of perspective because you know we, we don't we don't get to talk to vets and things like that <laughs> that much you know i'm but uh but no that's great man well i mean as far as everything else goes i mean is there anything other thoughts that you want to finish with i mean any um maybe a pearl of wisdom uh, a little bit bit of advice that you want to pass on to people or um I mean, any other thoughts that you might have? Yeah, I think I think the main thing with falconry is that for me, I get involved with a lot of the legislation side of things. I'm always asked to read this new legislation that they're trying to bring in in Holland or read this new legislation they're trying to bring in the UK, which potentially will restrict falconry further. And I'm, I'm obviously fighting on the falconer side in these situations. But um, I think as falconers we are responsible to drive best practice in everything that we do and and the better that we practice as falconers the easier it is to continue to do what we do and and try and work together and from a conservation point of view and look at the real global picture of falconry because it's a it's a minority um it's very much a minority activity you've got what did we say four thousand falconers in the u.s yeah i think there's somewhere around that like license but only really like a thousand ish or yeah. so that I, I don't know the recent numbers so sorry if i'm misquoting those no. but that, that's kind of the last realm that i've heard yeah absolutely and uh, i've heard any anything from sort of 10 to twenty thousand in the uk um because not everyone's licensed or don't have licensed species it's hard to track in the uk um you don't need a license there's no track of everyone who owns harris hawks for example whereas peregrines because they're a licensed species we know how many peregrines there are in the uk but it's it's difficult for certain species but it's a minority activity we're under a lot of pressure from all sorts of organizations to ban it um in in across the globe and i think we need to work together for animal welfare best practice evolve um to to ensure that falcon is here for the next generation because uh we're all a bit concerned that uh, we could be the last generation of, of falconers certainly in the uk so that's that's a big thing for me that's what i'm trying to work towards and and, and making sure we're doing right by our birds and that, that there's absolutely nothing we can be attacked on because we're doing everything as well as we possibly can perfect well if uh, anyone 
that's uh, listening that, that's not aware of you or your practice? I mean, is there anything you'd like to plug real quick about your, your practice or any any way people can get a hold of you if they need your services? Yeah, absolutely. So we're, we're great Western exotics. We're, we're in um, sort of central, central Western um, United Kingdom. We've got a website, Facebook. You can look us up there. Um, more than happy. We've got email address on, on our website, Great Western Exotics. So, um, yeah, if you Google that, you'll find us pretty quickly. Um, and, uh, yeah, we're always interested to, to hear from people and, and, and advise and help out wherever we can. We look out for we do some courses in the uk for falconers um on first aid and emergency care sort of what you can do between an injury or an accident happening and getting the bird to the vet to Im- improve survival so if particularly for newer falconers that's that's a, a something to look out for something that that we offer um so so that's yeah something something that's worth booking onto awesome man well thanks so much for your time and like i said i'm glad we could fit this in this weekend and uh it's been nice getting to know you a little bit and talking and stuff and um yeah man i hope it's a good rest of the show for you and um yeah it looks like the sun's finally coming out just a little bit here so at least that's a good thing exactly a bit of, <laughs> bit of blue sky no it's been a pleasure uh, awesome man well thank you again so much and uh yeah let's go hang out perfect